Hello, and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 178th episode, our guest is Richard Kreitner. Richard Kreitner is a contributing writer to The Nation magazine and the author of Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. A graduate of McGill University, he has also written for Slate, Salon, The Baffler, Raritan, The Forward, and The Boston Globe. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two children. And now on to the show. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. Happy to do it. Um, spent all day with, with two babies, so I hope my brain's not too fried. <laughs> I got I got you beat because I got oh, yeah? three three babies, and we oh, went wow. on our first uh, outing as a family, which was more than like 30 minutes away from our house today oh, with a uh, five-month-old, three-month, or th- three, not, no, that would be crazy. No, five-month-old, three-year-old, six-year-old. So. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. What, yeah. what day was the five-month-old born? Because ours is, is five or six months. Uh, April 27th. All right, we got March 25th, right right in the peak wow. of the shit. I, I delivered her in our bathtub by accident. Oh, my. Oh, okay. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> there was a whole episode about that with my wife a couple episodes back. but. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. Um, um, well, how's yeah, the outing? I, I feel your pain. So. <laughs> <laughs> how's the outing today? Oh, it was great, great. We went to a state park. We walked around on an easy trail. We saw some owls. It was cool. Nice. It's fun. That's so, awesome. You're uh, in Indiana, right? Yeah, yeah. Where are you at? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. No kidding. Okay, so a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. How is Brooklyn, New York these days? It's good. It's certainly better than it was at that time. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty good. Most people are, you know, behaving pretty well with the masks and stuff. As I say, we weren't really doing too much anyway. We weren't going to bars and restaurants. Um, oh. You know, so it's, it's fine. Um, yeah, that's it. But it used to be the COVID hotspot, and now you guys are doing relatively well. Yeah, what yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's pretty, it's pretty relaxed, certainly, compared yeah. to what it was in the spring. Um, and I don't know. I mean, some people think that that's because everybody had it, you know, and the, <laughs> you know, the tests aren't picking that up for some reason. Right. Um, I'm not sure because people are behaving with the masks and social distancing, but not everybody and, and not all mm-hmm. too much. No, um, def- definitely not everybody in Indiana. <laughs> I'm sure not. Yeah. I mean, from what I've heard, you know, you're a freak if you're wearing a mask. Is that about, is that about right? Uh, so I'm a newspaper editor during my day job, and uh, I often cover cover local government meetings, and I am frequently the only person wearing a mask, wow. uh, or social distancing for that matter. Uh, so it's it's all everything you'd expect it to be. Uh, that's neither here nor there, or or is it, or is this part of yeah. your book? Too? <laughs> yeah, good 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 deal. So um, I guess we didn't even get around to just go ahead and introduce yourself for people who don't know who you are. Oh, we're recording already. Okay, I didn't realize Oh, that. yeah, we just get it rolling. We, yeah. That's cool. Um, so my name is Richard Kreitner. I'm a contributing writer for The Nation magazine, and I uh, just published a book in August, um, The History of the Idea of Breaking Up the Union, called Break It Up. And I've been working on that for about five years, more or less, kind of full speed for about three, three and a half years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've got two kids, as we were saying, wife, mm-hmm. wife's teacher. Um what else? What are you looking for? Personal, political? Whatever, man. <laughs> everywhere. Uh, born, so uh, as, yeah. I grew up in New Jersey, and I went to school at McGill University in Montreal, where oh, I studied wow. philosophy. Um, and my joke is that if I had studied history, I'd probably be writing a book about philosophy. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't care too much for school. Um, and uh, yeah, this is my second book, though it, it started as my first one. I published one book. Um, I started writing one after I started writing this, uh, just mm. kind of at, at night, and published it um, a year and a half ago called Booked, which is about uh, places in literature that you can visit in real life. Kind oh, of a side, side project kind of thing. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, but this one, this, this topic really grabbed me when I first thought of it um, in late 2014. Um, I just uh, got the, the thought in my head. Um, the Democrats had lost the Senate and Obama was governing through executive orders, which I thought were of, you know, dubious constitutional value and, and strategic political value because it seemed like a Republican president could rescind them as easily as Obama, you know, tendered them. And that ended up being the case. It just occurred to me, maybe maybe the federal government is the problem. Maybe the union is the problem. And if we broke it up or broke it down into smaller pieces, 
maybe, you know, we meeting, I guess, the left or something, but, you know, um, people who want universal health care, people who want to do something about climate change uh, would be able to get, get more done and, and have a country that, uh, you know, is more to my liking. Um, and then I just, you know, that was a scary thought, so I kind of <laughs> avoided answering it and instead looked at who else in history had, had this thought, um, you know, because obviously everybody knows about the Confederacy, but that wasn't an especially appealing um you know, antecedent. Uh, so I wanted to see if there were any people who supported it for noble reasons, and it turned out that there were. So I decided to just tell the whole story of everybody who had had the idea, all the movements who tried to make it happen, and, and just generally a, a history of the fragility of the union. Yeah, you talked, you, you said like 10 things I want to talk about separately for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, you're, so let's go back a little bit. Your wife's a teacher? Yeah, she is. Yeah, how's, she, how's she doing right now with everything, being a Could teacher? It's- pretty stressed i mean here in new york yeah, no kidding um, they I went, to, I, I went to school to be a teacher and i'm no longer okay. a teacher uh, yeah if if i hadn't already uh turned into my, my uh into a journalist I, I probably would have picked another career by now anyway because from everything i've heard it's it's yeah people people are stressed beyond belief like yeah, there's well, no certainty about anything well even in in normal times they're they're undervalued sure. and oh, considered dispensable Mm-hmm. And then this comes along, and, and that's mm-hmm. just tripled or something. Like, in the spring, New York was really slow in shutting the schools down because of, of various kind of misguided policy or, you know, reasons. But but pe- teachers died, and they, they were hiding the fact that there were cases. And um, it seems like they're kind of making the same decision in reverse now about reopening. So it's just – it's it's kind of a scary time uh, for us. And, um, you know, like I said, we've got babies, so we've got childcare difficulties. And, you know, you don't oh, want to wow. expose the grandmothers who, who might – Mm. be helpful but um so yeah not not too great but you know she's uh she's strong and absolutely heroic and um you know we're doing all right well yeah props to all the teachers out there for sure um absolutely 100 percent. always were essential workers uh deserve to be supported every way more and now i hope everyone realizes that after because, uh, well, my, my wife and I are also in a unique position because we're actually, we always plan to homeschool our kids, but now it's like, well, <laughs> it's never yeah. never been a better time to start. So our son just started kindergarten, so uh-huh. he's doing great. Today, by the way, today counted as a school day, state of Indiana. I hope you know we're counting this one. We went to a yeah. state park. We looked at owls. <laughs> we talked about nice. plants. It was legit. <laughs> um but yeah it's it's super hard to be a teacher now always i mean i know uh believe me um but uh anyway so your book wow uh great topic uh very pertinent um i'm i'm still i'm not done reading it i i'm i'm about halfway through so um, no spoiler alerts i'm kidding Uh, (laughs) it's history you can just say whatever it is there there Uh, there was a civil war oh no i haven't gotten there yet (laughs) (laughs) you're kidding me (laughs) well i try to i try to maintain this 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 um obviously artificial sense of um not knowing whether it was coming or more especially i'm not climbing on that tone i I, (laughs) more especially when it was coming because everybody kind of suspected that there was a war coming it was it didn't come out of nowhere Hmm. um you know it's one of the things i try to show well, it's 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 funny because every time you have one of these quotes that's all about like disunion, I like get a little bit anxious, and I'm like, oh man, are these Americans gonna make it or not? <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, that's good. That's the effect I was going for. No, no, yeah. I liked it. It was a good way of telling the story. And it's the same, obviously, the same questions and the same uncertainty that we have today. Hundred hmm. percent, absolutely. Never has never left us uh, ever, uh, really, and is baked into the cake in so many ways. Yep. And we're still living with the consequences of today, uh, through, uh, minority majority rule, uh, yep. basic. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure you get to that by the end of the book. Yeah. Um, this is but, my first interview that I've done since, you know, RBG passed from this. Thank you realm. for getting that. I'm sorry. I, I should have with 10 minutes in, I'm ashamed of myself. Our, our rest in power, RBG, RBG, absolutely. I know we're not supposed to say rest in peace, but, uh, you know, positive <laughs> way to live your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, huge loss. Crazy. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. Um, I think that uh, they're going to push it through in a lame duck session after Trump so loses, terrible. I hope. I don't know. I don't know about no, that. But hope? That's so illegitimate. Um. 
And it's I think all, it's, it's, I think, it's all legitimate. What am I saying? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and I think it's going to be on Democrats to decide whether to pack pack the court or not. And I think they should. And I'm not confident. I, I'm so, honestly, I, I'm, I think they shouldn't take that off the table at all. Oh no, I think they should do it. I just don't think that they will. Um, so disappointing, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I get the the argument that it just means that Republicans can do it in reverse. But my feeling is that if you combine it with with um, uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices uh, of, of staggered 18-year terms, that means that each president elected to a term gets two vacancies. Mm. Or if you expanded the court first, you might have to change the number um, of, of how long the term would be. But the same, you know, each president would have the same number of vacancies. So it would take this kind of uncertainty about deaths and about retirements and the whole political, you know, strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think would make our politics much saner, at least in um, so that'd be my proposal. I don't know what is going to happen, but it's 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 not good. I mean, just you know, we we had such a sort of towering pile of crises before this. That's uh, really, I know, uh, not what the country needed. So, it's it's so bad. Um, it's just it's one of those things that's so bad. It's like my brain can't even process how bad it is. It's like it doesn't even like I, the, the the the. It's like a misfire. Like it's like. Yeah. Uh, but it's 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 a sad statement that we have to depend on somebody to live past the age of 87 to like make everything okay for us because i just feel like that's whatever that system is it's it's that needs to change somehow i mean yeah, you lived exactly. you lived in canada isn't it different there like don't justices have to retire at 75 didn't i read somewhere you know i actually have no idea <laughs> oh. i don't know i followed well i mean you just went to college there it's not like you had to study the yeah no, i have no idea how this year or whatever uh, that'd be worth looking at. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, other, for, other democracies around the world do this not for lifetime terms, is what I'm saying. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, it certainly it certainly is a, is reveals a, a, I think a possibly fatal flaw in the system, you know, um, and 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 undermines the legitimacy of the governments. And that was you know that supposition that there might be a legitimacy crisis on the horizon is kind of what you know kicked off the the book idea for me. It's already here. I mean, it's already here. The Senate, the Electoral College. Yeah, every branch of government. Every, it's all stacked against us. Like, I live in a quote-unquote red state or whatever, and I'm even saying that. Like, it's just so glaringly obvious. Like, yeah. like on the way to the state park, we drove past a million uh, cornfields and soybean fields and uh, Trump flags and a few Biden signs, to be fair, <laughs> not as many, uh, and uh, you know, not much else. And that we have two senators in, you know, New York, California. I've li- I used to I lived in California for three years. I want to get to that too because when I was there, uh, people talked about having uh, separatist Northern California, Southern California states. While I was there, that was like openly talked about. Because mm-hmm. uh, it it didn't feel like this is a tangent that I'm sure we'll get to later, but like. Uh, it never felt like I lived in the same state as Southern California. And I even had visited Southern California as a kid because my uh, aunt, my cousins, and my uncle lived there, so and my grandfather. So it's like I, li- I went to San Diego, I went to Southern California, Arizona, and I was familiar with the area. But when I lived in Ca- Northern California for three years, when Mendocino County, it was it was another world. I never went anywhere. I mean, the, for the south I went was like, San Jose, and that's it. But like people that I knew as friends and still have as friends there, uh, to openly talked about like we need to like separate and be a southern state because they were always like bankrupting us and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we were producing like you know the uh, Bay Area and uh, Northern Bay and you know everything else. We were do- we were doing everything for them, and they, all they were doing was sucking away. And people were like people were like openly talking about this. It was it was really a thing people talked about. Still, so, yeah, I mean that's uh, a, that's a division that goes back you know to the like, mm-hmm. 1850s. Uh, people, I, I found somebody that I mentioned in the book. Um, who uses the phrase "a house divided cannot stand," but it's about California in the year is mm. 1856 or something. You know, four years before, um, before or a couple of years before Abraham Lincoln uses the uses the phrase. Um, and that's an that's an old idea. And you know, I think some people feel like that is the way to rectify the the problem of the Senate, where California has almost 70 times the number of people as say Wyoming, and yet they have the same two senators. And that that's kind of one reason why people in California support secession from the federal government. But instead, you might break California into, say, five states, um, mm-hmm. each of which would have two senators. And that would not only, you know, 
um, alleviate the problem of minority rule at the federal level, but but even things out um, within the state itself, mm-hmm. um, it's possible. You know, this whole idea of breaking up states as well as the country is an idea that that crops up throughout American history, and I I, I, I relate the story in some eras, and other times I just I just wasn't able to get to it. Um, but it suggests something to me about this kind of innate fractiousness of American politics that that we're always talking about. You know, separatist mm. movements of one form or another, either nationally or on the state level. Um, and that begins, you know, right right after the revolution, when, when Kentucky's trying to break away mm-hmm. from Virginia and Vermont's trying to break away from New York. Um, right, you know, yeah. Tradition. Yeah, that, that blew my mind about, uh, was it Vermont that, like, offered something about they want the king of Prussia? Uh, in your book, you, you talked about that. Like, weren't they like, w- w- you can be controlling our country <laughs> if, uh, like, or uh, it was it was in between the Articles of Confederation and mm-hmm. the, um, I think I think it was Vermont. Vermont yeah, well, didn't become a state, right? Two, two different. Sorry, I, I think I yeah, I'm mixing up two different things in your book. Yeah, sorry. one is that after the Revolution, um, Vermont is an independent republic because yes. they break away from New York, right. but the Congress is not willing to let them in as a, as the 14th state because New York objects and claims mm. still claims sovereignty over over the Green Mountain area. Um, so instead, Ethan Allen, who's in charge of Vermont, appeals to the British, you know, the American's enemy, and says that we will we will join Canada um, uh, if if you don't let us in as a state. And and Congress finds this out, and they have to break off negotiations. But but it's this kind of subtle threat that if um, if if their interests were denied, they would they would ally with with the country's enemy, which which mm. a lot of people you know threatened at the time, not only with Britain but also with Spain um, in in your neck of the woods in, in like Kentucky in the Ohio River Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, but then secondly, there's a separate story a couple of years later in 1786 when the country is just totally falling apart, economic depression, foreign enemies are circling the you know the separatist movements in every part of the country. Um, it, it's essentially a failure, and this is only ten years into independence. And uh, the, the president of the Congress at the time, which was a very weak position, not like the presidency today, but he writes to Frederick the Great's brother in uh, in Prussia, and offers him the throne as King of the United States if he if he wants to, you know, come back over and, and reestablish monarchy in America. But the but the king the the prince says um, that Americans are too fractious, too anti-authoritarian, uh, that they would never agree to be ruled from a throne. So, so he says no to it, and instead they have the Constitutional Convention, of course, and, and kind of a reboot for the country. Um, but, you know, both those stories, I think, show how radically open things were at this time period. It was not, like, mm-hmm. inevitable, as we now think, that mm-hmm. after establishing independence, America would kind of rise to greatness and always stay unified. You know, the, the truth was very far from that. It was, it was constantly um, divided, and, and people were, were always proposing to, to break it up or, or otherwise massively change the, the constitutional system, you know, system. Um, and nothing was inevitable about it, about it holding together. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to skip forward, but this is something I kind of wonder about that. I hope I'm sure that you're going to talk about later in the book, but I wonder how much the Louisiana purchase figures into all this because, okay, it's, it's easy to fight over land when, uh, when you have a coast, right? <laughs> when you have water nearby and a port and beaches and all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, the further you get inland, it's like a little more rough and tumble and it's like hilly area. And it's like, what, what have we been doing here? Like you said, you have to drag stuff over the mountains unless you like make a deal with Spain who's closed off the Mississippi river, you know, <laughs> all that business, uh, it gets dicey, you know? Yeah, uh, sure. Out, 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 out in the wilderness, and and waterways are really the only dependable route of transportation for mass things over a long period of time. Um, but you know, how much of that is like okay? You got you got New York, you got, and then you, but but then you also got California later on. But like you got all that part in the middle, and like that large, you know, middle part that does kind of hold the two coasts together in a certain way. 
Uh, and if you don't have that large swath of land, like I'm still reading about, you know, in the revolutionary times in your book. Um, so it's like there's there's all these like fractious colonies and it's like, they, well, we do business with Britain and it's like, you know, and then it's like you get into Kentucky and it's like, don't get eaten by a bear, you know, or <laughs> killed by some Native Americans or whatever. <laughs> it, it's pretty it's pretty, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. You know, I wouldn't be the first one to do that. Anyway. Yeah, no, it definitely. I mean, all the problems aside that we talk about today about conquest you know an empire um mm-hmm. it certainly took you know chutzpah to to, to forge into this, this 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 wilderness um Absolutely. for sure you know respect on, on that in that regard um mm-hmm. as for the louisiana purchase it plays a you know pretty big role in the in the book and in my story i mean you you mentioned spain closing the mississippi river because spain controlled new orleans and in that way they were able to use that as leverage over the you know the frontiersmen in kentucky and tennessee um because they weren't able to ship their stuff out to the world without without allying with spain or even declaring allegiance so they, they at that point 1780s 1790s um those those people really did uh flirt with secessionism um and some actually you know were in the pay of of spain um in, in trying to break the ties that that bound those those frontiersmen to the eastern states that they had left um and and that was the reason for the louisiana purchase is that spain was about to give new orleans and the rest of louisiana which is this vast territory on the western side of the Mississippi River, um, all the way to the Rocky Mountains, back to France, which had originally had it. And France, you know, under Napoleon, was much, much stronger than Spain and, and might be able to actually break off those western territories from the Union. So Jefferson sends um, James Monroe to Paris to negotiate the purchase of New Orleans. Instead, for various reasons that have to do with what was going on in Haiti at the time, Napoleon unloads the entire Louisiana territory. Um, you know, for, for like $15 million, just a really awesome deal. Um, and Jefferson is hoping that this finally quiets these movements for separate for separation in the West. But instead, what it, what it does, as many um, efforts to hold the Union together, to unite it more closely, have done throughout American history, is it actually raises a separate problem in the Northeast, in New England, where they totally oppose the Louisiana Purchase. Again, like we think of this as this great, you know, shining moment of national triumph. Um, but it was massively controversial, and New England actually wanted to secede from the Union in protest of the Louisiana Purchase because they realized that their power would be totally diluted if this vast, you know, Western domain, which would be settled by slave owners, you know, under Jefferson's regime, um, entered the Union. They realized that New England would totally lose all power that it had once had. Um, and so they actually supported secession in 1803, 1804, right after the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and this goes off in lots of different directions. For one thing, it's it's eventually what leads to the Hamilton-Burr duel, um, because Burr is is found to be or suspected of being in cahoots with these northern separatists, and Hamilton accuses him of that. Burr challenges him back, and they end up fighting the duel. Um, Hamilton dies, of course, and Burr flees. And what he does is he starts another independence movement. Now he's trying to basically make the Louisiana Purchase an independent nation. Um, and invade and conquer New Orleans from the United States, uh, convince these Westerners in Kentucky and, and, and Ohio and stuff to declare independence and form this vast Western empire from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rockies, and then eventually he would take over Mexico as well uh, and, and, and form this massive empire. It's kind of a, a very little-known story in American history. Um, but that was also you know, a fallout from the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, and then finally, the one, last, the other thing I want to mention about that is that Jefferson himself wasn't totally sure that the that the land purchased uh, from France would become part of the United States. Somebody wrote to him and said, you know, this will make the country too big; it won't be able to hold together. And Jefferson effectively writes back saying, that's fine, you know, um, it doesn't need to be part of the United States as long as it's settled by our sons, you know, which is to say by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, um, you know, Americans. It doesn't need to be part of the United States. And he was fine with that. Um, Jefferson didn't really, in, you know, insist on keeping the country together in that way or in, or in keeping the continent under one government, um, which is very interesting because, as I said, that's what his, his kind of political enemies in New England uh, also, you know, favored secession at the same time. So this moment, you know, which everybody thinks is this moment of national consolidation, the Louisiana Purchase, the country's, you know, doubles in size, 
was actually a moment where everybody had their doubts about whether the country was united or should be united, um, or it would be better, you know, to break break it up into smaller pieces that would be more manageable um, and possibly even more democratic. This is maybe an existential question that you, maybe you get to later. Uh, I don't know how to say this. I'm trying to say this right. Um, I'm all for an existential <laughs> <laughs> as a philosophy what? major. What's that? As as a former philosophy major, I'm all for existential questions. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, what do you think is a more powerful force, a shared ideal or a shared threat? Um, definitely threat. Definitely threat. I would say it's the so only. So you don't, power, you don't the think higher, you know, Michelle Obama esque ideas. You don't think? No, no. I think that's that's think maybe so. a use a useful fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but not even that useful because you know what what ideals liberty uh equality like these are things that divide us as much as they unite us because we all have different ideas about what what that means um you know there's no two ideas you can have about is a native american going to slit your throat you know or is 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 the soviet union going to start a nuclear war i mean these external threats if you're able to build them up in, in a convincing way are really i mean in my opinion the only thing that has held the country together um mm. From the beginning, even before it was a country, it was the only thing that drove the colonists to cooperate with one another when they well, really otherwise yeah. didn't want to at all. Um, right. Even though, even though they shared ideals about self-government, you know, and, and liberty and whatnot, even before the revolution. Um, yeah. So I would say uh, definitely the threat, which is perhaps a cynical view. Um, but it, I feel like it's the truth. I mean, you look at the Obama era. Don't, don't people call that Hobbesian or something? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I only know this from the Calvin and the Hobbes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, because Hobbes, Hobbes is talking about, like, any political society at all. Um, whereas I'm, I'm, I'm more talking about these very large sort of configurations of multiple states mm-hmm. that I think are really hard to hold together with any kind of united ideal. And, and I suspect, that, and many people have thought this, you know, that um, in, in smaller, you know, polities or communities, you could have more of an ideals-based, um, you know, community rather than a fear-based one but i think when you when you've got such a large one to coordinate i think fear especially fear of the unknown um plays a major role in holding the country together Mm. wow well that's very upsetting given what's happening right now i have to tell you (laughs) uh, you know i mean i'm not i i mentioned um in i think a different interview just like it's not that I'm not surprised by what has happened since mm-hmm. I started working on the book in 2014 or 2015, but I'm really not as surprised, I think, as most people, because it was, no, it became it's, clear it's, to me. As it's, it's, like, it's, you, you've picked a timeless topic uh, in American history, for yeah, sure. But like, it's I never, have, like, like, the thing you picked to talk about is never going to be like, well, that doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, but if this book came out in, like, 2007 or something... Mm-hmm. Or even 2015, I think, before Trump. That's I'm true. not sure it feels as relevant. Honestly, I think like oh, right no, now. Yeah, no, that's true. No, that's like true. Like this season is probably, if I was going to publish a book on this in the last no, like 150 you, you years. You knocked it right out of the park <laughs> you know? with the time. It's yeah, too, it's too perfect. I mean, it, it feels like kind of a live action epilogue, you know, to, to the book that I wrote or finished last year. Insane. I was at the grocery store today and I saw on the National Enquirer or whatever tabloid I was at the checkout with, it said Civil War. (laughs) Thanks for the help. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I mean, my line about that is I I wonder if the Civil War comes by forcing ourselves to stay together rather than by allowing ourselves, Mm. you know, hopefully peacefully to to come apart. Um, Oh, no. Like, like. Yeah, it's it's weird because like I've my friend Jonathan's been on the podcast many times and we we talked about this during college when we lived together. Uh, it's like I don't want to live in their country and they don't want to live in mine. Like, why are we trying to hold this together at a certain point? It's like I, isn't I don't, that isn't that weird though? Given that you live in Indiana, I mean, what is that? What's yeah, that really but like we've always like? lived in kind of blue areas of Indiana, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I grew up in Mitchell, Indiana, which is about three thousand people, and you can, you know, you, I'm sure you understand what that was like, if you can imagine. Uh, and then I went to uh, Indiana University for college, uh, and me and my friend Jonathan lived together. We were both from Mitchell. Uh, and it was a blue, it was, you know, it's a blue, one of those blue dots. It's a college town. It's, mm-hmm. uh, 
whatever. Uh, and then now I live in a suburb of Indianapolis that in you know, past elections and often goes for, uh, you know, not so much this time, maybe, but uh, uh, Democrats. So, I, you know, Indiana w- went for Obama in, in 2008. Well, it's not for yeah, but, but I guess I mean that if the country broke down into like eight eight to 12 okay, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd definitely regions, be, you'd be kind of in yeah, a tough I'd spot. I'd find enemy lines, as it were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. But, but I, I was born under enemy lines, so I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm, it there was boring go. when I lived in California. Everybody agreed with me. It was like newspaper <laughs> <laughs> columns and be like, yeah, so what? <laughs> you know, but Indiana, it's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a little more fun to be, you know, like I, I'm used to being the only person that, wears a mask in the in the meeting as i alluded to earlier uh, so does that, the idea of, of disunion and, and finding yourself literally behind enemy lines or something does that in, intrigue you or does that totally turn yeah, you off because your I life mean, become it, difficult? Uh, you would be surprised or maybe you wouldn't at how many confederate flags uh are out there in indiana which was never part of the confederacy and had right. union soldiers die in battle and there was a Confederate monument in Indianapolis, which only a year or two ago was taken down because there was a prisoner of war camp here and it was, you know, some connection, whatever, of the ones that died at the camp or something. But they took it down. It was in a graveyard. But, yeah, it's like, you know, it, it's very strange. It's like a mentality. Uh, people, people, yeah, I think people would totally separate. Uh, the problem is that the coasts make all the money uh, that right. they – People get a lot of uh, grants. A lot of these places, are, uh, you know, especially in the south and and you know some of the less populated areas, are not doing too good financially. Right. And California is the what eighth largest economy in the world by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, these to- these the, 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 who do you think is generating the tax revenue? No, of course, of course. I mean, that's why the whole it was so comical in the spring, or, or darkly comical, when when McConnell was talking about blue state bailouts of these you know, coastal states that wanted financial help to deal with COVID. And, and he was saying, no, you know, no blue state bailouts. When it's like all the money's going in the other direction. For Absolutely. Sure. For sure. Absolutely. You look at the charts of who's accepting government help. It's, it's hundred percent like top 20 is it's all red states pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to go back to what you were mentioning about um, Indiana and the Confederacy, because there's actually a story later in the book during the Civil War chapter about support for the Confederacy in um, the North, especially in the Midwest, um, in Ohio, Indiana and Illinois, okay. because like right. the, the southern counties in those states were, were actually quite pro-Confederate. And, and many actually wanted to secede from those mm. states and from the Union and form a new Confederate state called Jackson. Mm. Um, and there was a, there's an attempted uh you know, uprising actually. What a terrible name. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like this. There's a terrible this guy. What a terrible name. <laughs> there was this idea of forming a, a separate north northwestern republic. They called it at the time, um, which would have been allied with the Confederacy, and it would have, you know, again, it has to do with the Mississippi. It would have it would have allowed, you know, farmers in on the Ohio River to um, get their goods. It's always you know, the rivers. It's always always. The, it's always the rivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even in California, it was always the rivers. That was part of their gripe. Uh, they were always stealing our water mm-hmm. like we're going dry we have enough rainfall sometimes and when we do they all they suck it dry yeah. <laughs> in Southern California. that was well, like still there's some there's some arguments for like redrawing political boundaries according to you know watersheds basically mm-hmm. like bio bioregionalism which is kind mm-hmm. of the 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 guiding force behind the idea of cascadia uh, mm-hmm. which you know would be an independent republic in the pacific northwest um it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody recently about about this map that shows like all the indigenous nations that were in North America before the arrival of Europeans, and it, it you know, there, it's basically a map of watersheds. Everybody kind of had their own little republic um, in you know in each river valley, um, and it kind of feels like that's kind of like what the land wants. And you know, when we try to resist it with these like clean lines over mountain chains and stuff. Um, that's you know where a lot of the the problems and the separatist movements have arisen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Absolutely. Um, okay, but let's let's talk about the Civil War um, because I was I was always obsessed with the Civil War. My uh, dad mostly uh, took us to uh, Civil War battlefields a lot when I was a kid. So I. I've been to Gettysburg. I've been to uh, a lot of these uh, more famous ones. There's some in Indiana, but not not some of the big ones. Um, but uh, 
this 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 like uh what what's the uh, name for the kind view of the south like the um lost cause yeah, there you go. Lost cause. It's very mm-hmm. strong in Indiana too, and I was always that was always a head scratcher for me because it's like, like you were saying, like they flirted with uh, these, you know, coming becoming part of the South because of the, the, you know, the river proximities, and I, I, I get that for transportation reasons, I suppose, but it's so it's such a wannabe thing. It's like, ew, we're gonna maybe do it, and it's like, <laughs> I, my, my people historically. Uh, from my family are from uh, Canada, uh, mm. so it's it, I have more. I guess maybe maybe that's where my mentality comes from. Like maybe that's why I'm such an anomaly is because my my parents are both from Michigan, and my dad's family before that was from Canada back to England. So it's like I think I have a more. Uh, I, I, maybe that's where my, you know, I've never thought about that before, but maybe that's part yes. of where my uh, yeah. political view comes from, honestly, because like I've always felt like an outlier because I didn't. Uh, most of the people I grew up with in rural Southern Indiana were uh, their parents had lived there, you know, their grandparents, yeah, the people streets were named after them, uh, all that. Like, so yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there was a strong pro Confederate thing. I, I, I mean, we explain a lot, but it's so like, I mean, there's Confederate uh, monuments or at least there was until recently uh, in Montana, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So uh, it's like, it's an idea more than uh, necessarily a, a location. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I should talk about this later in the book where I think this really happens around like the civil rights movement, where this this idea of like neo-Confederate ideology or resistance to the federal government and to efforts of integration um, and, and equal equality and civil rights is kind of nationalized um, and effectively becomes this kind of statement of modern conservatism um, where where even if you have no familial you know link to the Confederacy, you still kind of regret that it lost and, mm-hmm. and uh, effectively that white supremacy either lost or had come under challenge then and was coming under challenge again um, now, you know, which is, which is why we were, we're facing it, you know, once again. Um, I mean, right. as the civil war entirely, I think that there's you know, so many people, I, I also got very obsessed with the civil war right before starting this book. And that kind of mm-hmm. is what triggered it for me is, is like, why are we so obsessed with this thing? What, like, it just seems like we all have, as a country, this kind of like mm. subconscious um, obsession with it, which is not only a desire to avoid it, but kind of we all kind of wish. I think that we experienced it. We all kind of wonder, what <laughs> right? It's like, what would I have done? Where would yeah. I? Have been? I hope I would have not you know, done the wrong thing. Although yeah. there's a story of Cooter Brown. Have you ever heard this legend? It's maybe it's a local Indiana legend or something, but like he lived on either the Indiana or Kentucky side of the border. Um, and he had friends on both sides. So he, uh, just got incredibly blindingly drunk for the entire war and just didn't serve or do anything useful. And then he just like stopped drinking after the war. But it's like the, the expression is I'm, I was drunker than Cooter Brown. Uh, uh-huh. and, but, the, but it's like a legend. It's like, he has, friends on both sides union confederate and he just like i don't want to choose and it's just like i'm gonna check out yeah, <laughs> yeah. um so maybe that the rest maybe of us i feel like are trying to check in you know to the right, right. We kind of wish we could experience it like that's what i say at some point in the book I yeah think maybe in the conclusion that disunion is something that we both fear of course and, and but also something that we seem to desire mm. a little bit just to just you know uh for some reason some kind of deep-seated psychological reason Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the Civil War is this like massive trauma that we really still haven't dealt with as a country, and that's why it it is the the kind yeah. of secret sauce behind t- so many of our public disputes about Confederate monuments, about <sighs> reparations, um, yeah. and you know, and generally this kind of almost neurotic relationship that we have with the question of national unity. Mm. Oh man, yeah. No, it's it's like it's crazy. On my way to work. Uh, I see, I see Trump flags, and then they're always, not always, very often, with Confederate flags, but also yeah. with American flags. Mm-hmm. And it's like well, actually, I wrote, I wrote, a, I wrote a piece about this for the New Republic um, yeah. over the summer, uh, <laughs> arguing that um, people think it's a contradiction that there's there's this guy photographed at one of the kind of I don't know if it was anti-Black Lives Matter rally or a lockdown rally or something. But he was wearing a shirt that said "America, love it or leave it," and he was waving a Confederate flag. 
And everyone was dunking on this guy because it seemed so patently uh, contradictory. But I was I was saying it really wasn't because uh, after the Civil War, the way that, that things got tied up in Reconstruction, the what the U.S. flag came to mean was effectively what the Confederates had wanted their flag to mean, which is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, 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 that kind of is the, the real hidden truth of American history, which is that the, the Confederate, you know, Confederate nostalgia is not at all incompatible with American patriotism. It's, they're almost the exact same thing, um, mm. according to their vision of what the country is, was, and should be. Such and a warped view. Such a yeah. warped view. And, and, but, you know, then, and if we want that to change, it's kind of up to us to change the meaning of, um, of the U.S. flag. And, and, you know, effectively of the U.S. Um, yeah, why do they get to be patriotic? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, why do you own that? Why do you own religion? Why do you own, you know, you don't care. Not really. Like, it's it's just kind of like it's a gang or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's, gang, that's, gang mentality. That's kind of one of the sub-themes running through the book, really, is how patriotism very quickly can turn into secessionism and vice versa, depending on your fortunes in politics, you know? So, like... like, like what Rick, does that word mean to you, basically, like, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, in, in, like, Rick Perry in 2009 was talking about secessionism when he was governor of Texas. You know, we, we love this union. We'd hate to give it up, but if the American... To be fair, know, I think that's a requirement to be governor of Texas. Right, right, right. <laughs> I think they all do. <laughs> yeah, but they haven't been saying that under Trump. You know, sure, the, sure. the Texas no, movement exactly. was huge it's under like, Obama. We secede. We already won. <laughs> it, just, it just disappeared overnight the moment Trump was elected. And right. the same with California. You know, under under Obama, California was totally in favor of strong federal power. And now they're like states' rights nullificationists. Yeah, Tenth uh, Amendment. <laughs> yeah, Tenth Amendment, exactly. <laughs> like, if you said the words Tenth Amendment in 2014, you were a total kook, you know? <laughs> But now it's like this totally legitimate thing for like Lawrence Tribe and you know list, you know established law professors and stuff to be talking about on Twitter. Oh, um, so it just suggests to me that there's this kind of as I you know as I keep saying this kind of essential fragility to the whole thing, and you know if each side keeps getting um, you know more pronounced in its threats to secede or to you know subvert federal power with every election, I mean something's going to blow, and and you know that's how it happens. The first time. Um, so I just think after this election, um, either side is probably going to talk quite loudly about about stuff like this, about about secession. Um, mm. It's just going to get more, you know, louder and louder until we figure out whether we want to be a country or not. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of guns. There's a lot of guns. Yeah, I know. But that's what I mean. Like maybe there's a lot of guns in Indiana. Like even even people that think like you and i would think in indiana mm-hmm. they have guns yeah, well, <laughs> like, i don't have yeah. guns personally but yeah <laughs> other people do that i know yeah that that are that aren't, that aren't like people that you know you know what i mean like they aren't stereotypical people that's like you know like like they they're they're cool but they're like, yeah, I'm gonna get a gun, because they're they're worried about this, you know. It's like, yeah, it's it's almost that. more incentive if you're if you're, you know, of a of a more liberal persuasion, yeah. uh, to get a gun at this point. Like I literally have conversations with my friends. It's like, you know, it's 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 more to you know, haha, zombie apocalypse away or whatever. But it's like, it's always like, yeah, I'm thinking of getting a gun. It's like, yeah, I get it. Like I I don't yeah. know, I'm not there yet, but I you know, I understand. Like, yeah, yeah, I get that too. I, that, you know, I want to avoid that completely, obviously. But yeah, but, it, but, but it seems yeah. I mean, but it's not obvious to me that staying together as a country is the way to avoid that, mm. as opposed to breaking up is the way to create it. Um, you know, that's how it happened the first time. We 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 had a civil war to avoid breaking up as a country. But it seems to me that that things have changed, and it might be that we need to break up in order to avoid having a civil war. You know that 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 a peaceful dissolution might be a best case scenario for what's coming mm-hmm. down the pike in the next you know decade or two. Okay, but like uh, maybe okay, let's 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 talk together. We've talked dissolution a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's talk union. What could mm-hmm. what could what could happen to make it more equitable, more fair? Um, I, I think D.C. Puerto Rican statehood is a no brainer. Uh, yeah. Any right-thinking person does, I'm sure, unless you're totally craven, uh, partisan. You know, it's it like I, the only reason to disenfranchise four million people is because you don't want them to have representation. Yeah. Uh, 
Absolutely. I mean, I've I've got ideas like that too, but that itself is part is 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 part of our like, you know, our partisanship. And like, it's there's not going to be a moment where Republicans just are like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's certainly like a long list of things that can happen that if they did happen, would you know per- perhaps ease our our political crisis. Um, but, you just don't think that's the way the wind's blowing. I don't think so. I just don't think they're going to happen because mm. of our political crisis. But anyway, you know that aside. I, th- I think one thing is, would be like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about mm. racism and white supremacy um, in American history uh, would be would be a major one, and, and you know I think reparations would be a part of that that conversation. It's just we we have these these traumas that have been unprocessed um, and and not worked through, um, and in countries like South Africa, you know it's only by working through them in a public way, in a televised way, uh, mm. that you're able to move on. Um, what, but as I say, I think that would be massively divisive, you know, highly controversial, right. unwanted in many parts of the country. Um, and it's possible that it would lead to the very kind of, you know, breakup or, or fragmentation that it's trying to avoid. But um, I think it's still worth risk take, uh, risk worth taking. Um, the second thing I would say would be the Green New Deal, I think, mm-hmm. has great potential to bring the country together. As the first one did, you know, the first one we, we rely on the infrastructure that it created to this very day, um, and that's infrastructure so taken, actually so taken for granted. You yeah, know? oh, totally, yeah, and and that's infrastructure that actually physically holds the the country together. You know, that connects the states, like highways, like highways, highways, bridges, tunnels, yeah, all of it, yeah. um, all kinds of things, uh, mm-hmm. all you know, uh, dams. Flood control measures, you know, tons of stuff. I, I always thought a winning issue for the Democrats. Democrats, are you listening? Uh, I, you should listen to this. Chuck Schumer, a uh, listener. Yeah, yeah, listen right now. WPA 2.0, right now. Oh, absolutely, yeah, exactly. Right now, CCC. yesterday, three months ago. Come on. Well, that's One all time. in the Green New Deal. You know, that's that's what that's about. Um, but and but in it's not even a. It's not. I'm not even talking boondoggles. I'm talking real things. Infrastructure. Yeah. Well, Get that's it done. What, that's what the Green New Deal is. It's not boondoggles. It's not like, you know, digging a hole and filling it in. It's transitioning the country to, to green energy in a way that is necessary for not only national survival, but human survival, you know? Okay. Um, Everyone overestimates how much World War II pulled us out of depression, I think. Yeah. Personally. No, I agree. Uh, I agree. It's, a, it's a fairy tale that gets told, you know, every time American history gets told where I was growing up anyway, <laughs> yeah. it was always like, well, everything was terrible for 15 years, but then we started, a, you know, the, the mm-hmm. war started and yeah. you know, everything was great after that, the fifties, bendy guitar notes. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, but it's like, you know, you know what WPA, that's why I feel like I hate to keep going back to the state park I went to today, but that was built by this the you know ccc or whatever the you yeah. know the wpa that was that was the, that was new deal new this is actually, deal that's what made the army yeah. corps of engineers hello how do you think the army corps of engineers gets to rural northern indiana otherwise mm-hmm. never no yeah, that's exactly it. nope sorry that's that doesn't happen without a giant disaster that they need to employ a bunch of people like right now mm-hmm. <laughs> and our hello we're in that situation again uh, and, you know, COVID set off so many things that well, like we talked about with uh, your, your, your wife and teachers and everywhere. It's like it's like highlighted things we already knew to be true. Uh, we, our infrastructure is crumbling. Um, people are on, out of work. It, you know, put two and two together, people. Come on. Yeah, exactly. And plus plus the, the you know, environmentally necessary aspect of it. it it's a oh, no brainer. 100 percent. So that's the other thing that I would say I think could could actually bring the country together, especially I think once people actually realized, you know, how good it was. <laughs> I think it's easy to, ca- easy to caricature when it's not actually happening. But once mm-hmm. it started, you know, it actually put people to work in, you know, you know, who used to work in the mills and, 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 what, and all that stuff. People who fell for Trump's, you know, shenanigans. Um, and then, then yeah. the third the third plank of my Save the Country platform is, is about constitutional reform, which we were talking about earlier. Yes. The Senate, the Electoral College, yes. um, expand the House of Representatives, yes. pass campaign finance amendments to the yes. Constitution, um, you know, rescue democracy. Yeah, so, that, I mean, those are my three things, you know. Absolutely. And I, 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 you have, I my, you have my vote. What are you running for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but I just, I again, like, I just think that the system is is just too broken at this point. Um, that that we're, you know, to the the, the uh, to give us that stuff, or that we'll be able to enact them. 
Um, and yeah, especially, like, I, just, oh, sorry, I, just go I just don't think Biden is the, the leader that we need at this moment, to say the very least. Do you um, think he's going to lose? Do I what? He's going to lose? I have no idea. I mean, I th honestly, I think in a free and fair election, I think there's no way he loses. But as for whether it's going to be Not that... a free and fair election. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I thought it would be like 50-50 chance that it'd be a free and fair election. But I, I think it's much worse than that at this point. Not. So, especially with this court vacancy. So, mm. um, yes, I really don't know. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm massively worried. You won't, you won't get a hopeful note out of me. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's hard to find. I'm, I'm drilling as hard as I can. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, fine. <laughs> I mean, you win. <laughs> it does seem like young people are, you know, right-minded in certain ways. I always ask this before we go. My last question: uh, What music have you been listening to lately? That's a wow! What a great question. <laughs> I've actually been getting really into uh, Krautrock. Hmm. Um, you know, German stuff from the early 70s, like up to Kraftwerk. Um, mm. But even that stuff's a little more like techno than, than I, I'm into. There's this guy named Michael Rother, uh, who's a guitarist, who was, into a, uh, he was in a band called New, and mm. he, U. Um, and yeah, it's just this like instrumental stuff, which is just very hopeful, if that's what you're looking for. That's where I'm finding my hope these days, is in 70s Krautrock. Um so that's one, and then two. I have pretty, I have pretty strange music tastes. Um, but the other one, the one that kind of got me through writing the book actually is Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. You know him at all? Mm -mm. From the eighties. Mm -mm. He's this, um, he's a Pakistani singer. He's he's dead now for like twenty years. Um, mm. That's this form of music called Kawali, which is a uh, Sufi devotional music. Mm. <laughs> actually, I haven't talked about this yet, like on an interview or something, but um. Anyway, uh, and I heard something on the radio, and it, I just got into this genre, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. And this guy was actually really big. He played Central Park. He was, um, mm. he was friends with Peter Gabriel, who I think produced some stuff for him. Um, and it's just well, fantastic. Say, say his name again. Yeah, Nusrat, N-U-S-R-A-T is his first mm -hmm. name, and then Fatah Ali Khan. Okay. Um, and his, it's funny, because I, I, you know, I was visiting Montreal, where I went to school, and I went into a grocery store, and, and they were playing Nusrat. And it's, like, pretty obscure stuff. It was a Pakistani mm. grocery store. So I started talking to the guy, and he was telling me that Nusrat's nephew, Rahat Fatah Ali Khan, R-A-H-A-T, was about to tour North America um, and, and was coming to uh, Atlantic City. Now, I grew up in New Jersey, but I've actually never been to Atlantic City. So I decided I got, um, you know, permission from, from the missus, and I, I decided to go to this concert. <laughs> Um, about, about a year ago, um, it was at uh, one of the old Trump casinos in Atlantic, in Atlantic City. Now, oh. and I went. I stayed in this hostel, and I was literally the only the only <laughs> white person in the entire audience. <laughs> so, thousands of people, but it was absolutely incredible. It was like the greatest concert I've ever been to. He wow! Just, he took these old like Newsroot songs of his uncle, which are kind of traditional sounding, and he just made them absolutely bang. And it was like. Uh, so much fun. Um, mm. So yeah, I would, I would recommend you and anybody listening check out uh, Nusrat, um, and just generally Koali, which is just a, a beautiful, beautiful music. <laughs> I I asked you to spell it because <laughs> when I typed uh, the name partially in to Google it, it brought me brought me to the Wikipedia page for Al Nusra Front. So I'm gonna have to. <laughs> oh yeah, the difference. Pull that, pull that later. <laughs> Nusra with a T at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but he's you know so yeah it's it's muslim it's sufi but these cool. these guys are you know loathed by by islamic fundamentalists because they they you know show all the you know the beauty and sensuality of you know islamic life and and all that stuff um yeah great stuff i i'm i'm very uh, ignorant of music from that part of the world really the only um music from that area of the world i just looked it up uh it was a uh, dollar mindy uh um you uh -huh. should look up. uh d-a-l-e-r his first name s or well uh m-e-h-n-d-i -E -E so d-a-l-e-r m-e-h-n-d-i uh you should look up his music videos specifically uh oh. you and everyone else listening uh cool. you'll never be the same again it's, it's the time before and the 
the time after is what you'll divide your life into. Oh, um, awesome. <laughs> maybe I'm overselling it, but it was it blew my mind anyway. Cool. Uh, <laughs> but uh, cool. Uh, well, I I'm gonna finish your book. Uh, um, it's very interesting. Uh, awesome. I uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. You picked a great topic. Um, you you picked a very relevant topic, evergreen. Um, you know, I hope I hope for everyone's sake you're wrong uh, <laughs> about yeah, no, too, how too, you too. feel about how it's all going to turn out. Because um, I feel like you know maybe I would say that because I do live behind enemy lines, but yeah. I feel like we're better together. <laughs> I know. I mean, as a father, as a citizen, I, I also very much hope that I'm wrong. And also, I mean, the main thing you know you'll see as a, in the conclusion is that I hope that knowing this history and knowing the real threat of of, of breaking up, which I think is is actually closer than people even now. Um, realize. I hope that it kind of calls everyone to their senses, and and everyone can you know look at at what the union means to them, and and whether they think it's worth holding together, and if so, what needs to change in order to to make that happen. And it's you know I think the things that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely for sure. Well, um, thank you for taking so much time to talk no to problem. me. No uh, problem. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, your, your topic will may remain, uh, ever relevant. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I hope you have a good rest, good rest of your night and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. Good talking to you. you. Bye bye. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review 
everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.